Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're our guest, we have been looking at the book of 1 Peter for a while now. We find ourselves in the second chapter of 1 Peter. The cleric poet John Donne in the 17th century wrote these words, No man is an island entirely of itself. And in so doing, he echoed the words of Paul written to the Roman church in Romans 14:7, which says, None of us lives alone to himself. Part of the hazard of being an American Christian is that we are that group of people who have either directly or indirectly been raised on the idea of rugged individualism. And this seeps into the church. We're all about individuals coming to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And we are right to have that desire for all people. But in so doing, many times we think of our lives in Christ as to be lives lived in isolation. We can compartmentalize our own Christian walk without proper concern for the entire body of Christ. When you came to Jesus Christ, if you know Him as your Lord and Savior, you not only came to Jesus, you came to His body, the church of Jesus Christ. So many times we think of piety in our own lives as being something that we strive for. And we saw last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, how we are to grow unto salvation as we are nourished on the Word of God by God Himself. But what we fail to realize is there is no piety without society. We must have each other in order to grow. Yes, we must have that time when we are connected relevantly to God and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God and in effect, God nurses us and therefore nourishes us on the Word of God. We are to be in that kind of relationship with our Lord. It's vital. But if that is all you and I have, we miss the boat. Because what Jesus says when He says, wherever two or three have gathered together in My name, there I am in the midst of them, is very vital to our growth. Our growth will be stunted if we do not nourish ourselves at the breast of God, as it were, as we saw last week, His name that He gave Himself in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament, El Shaddai, literally means the many-breasted one. He is the one who nourishes us. We will not grow apart from such nourishment. However, we will not grow apart from community either in the body of Christ. We need each other. It's always encouraging to me when people come here to El Paso and they're looking for a church home. It's very encouraging to me. Not because they came to our church, that has a positive effect, but that they know the importance of being part of a church family. And they obviously have had something in their past which has proven that to them. How they have flourished in relationship to other brothers and sisters in Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is a universal church. It's not simply a local church. Local churches are God's, I would say, tips of the spear in the community in which they exist for the gospel. 
Certainly. But we need each other in the universal body of Christ. It's no accident that when Peter introduces this book, he addresses his words to those aliens who reside in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, which covered a wide geographical area. And this message that he gave to them is just as much of a message for us today, almost 2,000 years later. Because we are people to whom this is written. And we are, in a sense, connected to those people all the way back 2,000 years ago. Do you know that? Those who know Jesus Christ are still part of the church of Christ. They've just gone on to be with the Lord. And the church universal is not simply the church that is in this world. People who know Christ who make up the real church. The visible church is not always the real church. Did you know that? Jesus knew that. He knew it would be the case. In Matthew 13, he talks about the parable of the wheat and tares. And he says, don't go ripping up the weeds because you might rip up some real wheat in the process. So sometimes we see people in the church who give every indication of being members of the church who may not be members of the church. And there will be some people in the church that we think, maybe they're not Christians, maybe they really don't know the Lord, who are real believers So we understand that we cannot judge who a believer is based on their membership in a local church in the sense of formal membership. But we do know that God wants us to be part of His church. And what a privilege it is to be a part of the body of Christ. Would you agree with that? Verse 2, as I said, speaks of our growing up spiritually. We need to be men and women who want to be part and hunger to be a part of a local body of believers who recognize not Jesus simply as Savior, but Jesus as our Lord. There's a difference. I hope you know the difference. Many of us want to use Jesus as an escape clause from hell, and certainly he gives us a way out. It's awesome to be safe in the arms of Jesus, isn't it? Awesome in the hand of Christ, but we need to know Him as our Lord, too. And that should be our hope for our local church, whatever that church may be. When I was studying to become a pastor, I would make periodic visits to my hometown, and I'd go to worship with believers there. I was in church one Sunday, and I was surprised, actually, to see one of the guys whom I had studied with in high school. His name's Don Riley. He did not give any evidence of being a follower of Jesus in high school. And in fact, he was not a follower of Jesus. He told me that that day when I encountered him. We were then in our 20s, and I was glad to see him. I greeted him. He greeted me, and he says, I've become a born-again Christian. I said, that's awesome, Don. What church are you fellowshipping with? And I wasn't trying to be ugly. I was just interested. I wanted to know where he was fellowshipping. And he said, well, you know, I haven't settled in a church. I'm, well, by my own description, I'm a gypsy Christian. And what he meant was he just went here one Sunday and there another Sunday. And it's good to visit other bodies of believers. But God wants you to be planted in a local church family. And here's one of the reasons he does. It's because I can go one place one week and one place another, and I can have a honeymoon with all those brothers and sisters in Christ. But let's start living together and see what happens. 
That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to put up with one another in the love of Christ. There's a lot of putting up that has to be done in the body of Christ. But that's by design. Why do you think the Lord allows us to have people that we would not ordinarily choose to be associated with in the church? Here's why. It's because He wants us to learn how to love the way He loves. To lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is awesome, isn't it? Gypsyism is out, is what I would say. I think Jesus would agree with me. I hope He would. He doesn't have to do that if He doesn't want to. Well, the main verse that we're looking at today in these verses 4 through 8 What I'd like to do is read the entire passage, and when we come to the main clause in all of these verses, it's part of one verse in verse 5, but let's begin with verse 4. And coming to him, speaking of Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, Through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this they were also appointed. Glance back up at verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. You are being built up as a spiritual house. Speaking of the real temple of God. We know how central the temple in Jerusalem was to the descendants of Abraham to Israel in that nation's worship. It was the focal point. But that particular building was made of stones that were hard and firm. Beautiful building. One of the wonders of the world at the time. But we know it was destroyed and destroyed and destroyed again. We know that. But what God has done, He is the builder. He is the architect of His current temple. And it is a spiritual temple made out of living stones. You and I, if we're in Christ, one day in history, what God decided to do by His Spirit, He went into His rock quarry, He found a rock, and He fixed it so it would fit just right into His plan for His church for time and for eternity. And it was placed perfectly. This idea of being built up by God carries with it the idea that there is a design which God has for His church. And He has planned you to be part of the fulfillment of His design for the church in which you were a part. You probably know there's more than one word in the Old New Testament, rather, that's translated stone. The word that is used for stone, Petros, this word was used by Jesus in Matthew 16 when he asks his apostles, 
Who do men say that I am? They gave their answers. And then, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus extolled Peter. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, son of John. God has revealed this to you. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And what he was talking about, not Peter, but the faith that was demonstrated in the recognition that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. That word, Petros, is a word which was used to describe a loose rock that you might find walking down a Judean or Galilean road, and there's just a rock right there in the road. It's undressed, it's raw. The word which is chosen here to describe Jesus as the living stone, we'll get back to him before the morning is over. And the word that he uses here, same word that's pluralized, living stones, is the word lithos. That word describes not a raw stone, but a dressed stone. Whether it's a rock that has been taken out of a quarry and has been fit to be put into a building, just like all the stones were put into Herod's temple and Solomon's temple and all the temples that were built by the people of God. You know, there were no nails or hammers heard in the building of that temple. It was quiet. Can you believe it? I mean, you could hear the workmen. They were probably talking and giving direction to one another as to how to do what they were doing. But there were no tools used on those rocks at the site of the building. That was done at the rock quarry so that they would be fit. You know, the Lord has fitted you for the body of Christ that you are a part of locally and also universally. You have been hand-chosen by Him to be what is described in this passage as a holy priesthood. We know what the word holy means. It means set apart for God's use. That's what the word holy means. And this idea of a holy priesthood being universal, just as we are part of the universal body of Christ, every man, woman, boy, and girl who knows Jesus Christ is part of this holy priesthood. This is radical. You talk about radical. It is radical. Because we know, and you know, there was one tribe in Israel which was given the responsibility to serve as priests. What was the name of the tribe? Levi. The book of Leviticus talks about the priestly duties. And nobody else could do the priestly duties except those who were descendants of Levi, the son of Jacob. It was dangerous to interlope into that region of authority and responsibility. Can you think of people who did that in the Bible and the consequences that they suffered as a result of their overstepping the boundaries which God had placed on priestly duty. Uzziah comes to my mind. Uzziah, one of the more notable kings in the history of Judah. He reigned for over 50 years. He was a good king. But he got bad when he got older. He, he made a very bad mistake. He got proud, the Bible says. He was doing well as long as he sought the Lord. And all of a sudden, he was overcome with his own achievements. And they really weren't his. He forgot who empowered him to achieve. And so he decided one day, I'm going into the temple and I'm going to go into the area where the priests alone are allowed to go. And I'm going to light the lampstands. And he went in there. Word got out. 
to the priest that that was taking place. And lo and behold, the chief priest and others came in behind him, confronted him, and said, What do you think you are doing, Uzziah? Can you imagine coming to the king and saying that? But they were speaking on the authority of God's word. The result of that was that Uzziah was struck with leprosy, symbolic of sin. He was therefore unable to associate with any other Jewish person. This is the lead man in all of Israel for 50 plus years. And they built him a little outhouse outside the palace. He could not even go into his own palace because of the contamination which his pride had taken. Why? He interloped. He got involved in something he was not supposed to do. Now look, you are a priest if you know Jesus Christ. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not a priest. Well, I beg your pardon, you are. And what is a priest's responsibility? A priest's responsibility is to put men in touch with God and God in touch with men. The idea of the temple led to the thought of priest, a spiritual temple and spiritual priests. And the functions, as we've seen, include primarily to put men in touch with God and vice versa. Through sacrifices, look again. At verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, how can we really put some parameters around what this means? That seems sort of nebulous, doesn't it? How am I to offer up a spiritual sacrifice that through Jesus Christ it's acceptable to God. I don't even know what a spiritual sacrifice is. Well, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark. God is so kind, isn't He, to teach us things that we need to know in order to be obedient to His Word. In this case, we could go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself to God as what? Living sacrifices wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. The idea here is that I lay myself down, as it were. I surrender to be a living sacrifice. A burnt offering is what it actually means. It reminds me of when Abraham was told by God to take his son, his only son Isaac, to an appointed place on Mount Moriah and to sacrifice his son And what did Abraham do? The next morning he got up early, he took some help with him, and he took his son, and his son Isaac bore the bundle of wood upon which this sacrifice was going to be made, not knowing that he was to be the sacrifice. And then the text does not suggest there was any struggle on the part of Isaac. And you might think, well, there wouldn't be. He was a little boy. But if you do the math, what you must discover is he was a teenager. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was certainly able to overcome his 113 or 14-year-old dad. He was no match physically. Abraham was not for his son. But what did he do? He voluntarily lay there, volunteered to do that. Now, let's think about that in regard to us. We voluntarily present our bodies, that's our being... As living sacrifices, we understand what the Bible says 
when it says that if anyone wishes to come after Christ, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Christ. He must die daily. This is our spiritual act of worship. This is a spiritual sacrifice which we offer up to the Lord. And that act is an act which impacts people, not only in time, but forever when we do such a thing. Why do I say that? Because Jesus Himself says in the Gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And what kind of fruit might that be? People who've been put in touch with God through a holy priest or group of priests. Namely, people just like you and me. Every one of us has been given this awesome privilege to be part of this priesthood. We're part of a spiritual building. And that building, of course, is in Jesus. That's what we read from Ephesians chapter 2. He's the cornerstone. And in Christ Jesus, we are being built up and we're growing into a holy temple in which the Spirit of God lives. God is the builder. Remember, He's the architect. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, the Bible says, we are God's building. But God has called us alongside. And we are His fellow workers. That's what that same passage in 1 Corinthians says. God has called us. Do you think this would dignify any human being? Absolutely. There is no greater privilege than to be a child of God and to be a part of this spiritual temple. To be a living stone that He has placed in the building and to be part of being part of this holy priesthood who helps in the building up of the church, the temple of God. Self-surrender is an expression of what is spoken of here as a spiritual sacrifice. We're near Hebrews, so hold your place here and turn back a couple of books, to the last chapter of Hebrews 13. Let's see two more examples of self-sacrifice or spiritual sacrifice, beginning with verse 15. Hebrews 13, 15, through Him, that is through Jesus then. Remember, it's through Him that we have to offer these sacrifices, according to 1 Peter 2, 5. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips, that give thanks to His name. You talk about something that will get the attention of unbelievers, this gets the attention. When a believer knows Jesus and that believer is going through hardship in his or her life, what does that believer have an option of doing? Thanking God for the hardship or bellyaching? and becoming bitter toward God for the hardship. But when a person understands the sovereignty of God and understands that God uses our trouble, I'm going to tell you in a minute how He uses it, how He uses our trouble to help us get Him in touch with them. There's nothing quite like it when someone is suffering in any number of ways. There are many possible ways for believers to suffer. But when you suffer, and you suffer creatively, And by that I mean you suffer as you give thanks to God. It's a sacrifice for you to praise God because there's nothing about your situation that would recommend 
thanking God for it. It's bad. But from God's perspective, He knows He's in control. And what He does, He takes that bad deal. And because you believe what He says and you obey Him, He begins to do something revolutionary and life-changing in your life. And people are watching it. And they're trying to figure it out. What makes her tick? How can she do this? How can she stand this pressure? I think of the Apostle Paul in the book of First Corinthians. He said, we were under great pressure. Far beyond Second Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 1. We were under great pressure. Far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see the reason that the Lord lets difficulty into your life and my life so we can grow in dependence upon Him. Is there anything more significant for you or me than knowing God more intimately? Nothing is more important. And our Father loves us so much and He's intent upon preserving His glory in the world that He will allow us to go through trouble and it's purposeful. It's a spiritual sacrifice of a holy priest or priesthood. And the priest and the priestess, they come before the Lord and they praise the Lord. And here's the reason why. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. We sang a song Becky did that was beautiful. I think she was accompanied by Steve in it, a beautiful song in the first service for the offertory. And it talked about blessings in my life. And as I was thinking about that, normally when we think of blessing, we're thinking about how we're going to get blessed. Isn't that true? And there's nothing wrong with this. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We just need to claim what's ours. We don't have to go out hunting them. They're there. We've got every spiritual blessing. But as I thought about this, as they were singing, I thought about how, really, we find our greatest blessing in being a blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Money is usually what that's associated with. But I'm talking about it's blessed to give a blessing to somebody, and it could be in the form of financial help. But isn't that true? Think about your own life. Don't you get more joy and fulfillment out of being a tool in God's hand to bless someone than to get a blessing yourself. It's true, isn't it? And that's what happens to us as we yield to the Lord and we, through Jesus, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise through the lips of one, the fruit of the lips of one who gives thanks to Him. We thank the Lord. That will change you if you'll begin to do that in your life. And trust God that He knows what He's doing and allowing what's happening in your life to happen. Do that and see. It'll make a difference in your life, but it'll be a blessing to other people. People come to Christ. Look at the next verse in Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 16. And literally what the text says, stop neglecting doing good and sharing. Now remember, the Hebrew believers to whom this word was written earlier in the book of Hebrews... In the 10th chapter, the Bible talks about how these people who were followers of Jesus were having their property confiscated. They were being run out of their homes. And wouldn't you, if all of a sudden you had nothing except just a little bit to live on, 
If all of a sudden that happened to you, wouldn't you tend to be a little bit reserved in your generosity? Sure you would. But what God is saying to us, even in our extremity, do good and share with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So when we do good deeds, which were prepared in advance for us to do, when we were born again, created in Christ Jesus for good works, when God did that, He did it so that we could serve each other and share what we have. You don't have to have a lot to share with people. You just got to have something, and all of us have something we can share. Isn't that true? And this is a sacrifice with which God is pleased. One last look. If you'll go to Ephesians chapter 4, we could look elsewhere, but we'll stop here in the interest of time. Another example of this kind of spiritual sacrifice. What is the first one? We present ourselves as living sacrifices. We die to ourselves. That's the overarching idea. The second one is, through Him we continually offer a sacrifice of praise. That's another type of spiritual sacrifice, isn't it? Pleasing to God through Jesus. And then also, we do good and we share with one another in the body of Christ. Here's a fourth one, and really it's another form of the last one I spoke of, but let's look at it. Verse 18 of Philippians 4, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What was Paul writing to the Philippians? You may recall that the church at Philippi was among the churches in Macedonia. And among the churches of Macedonia, Philippi was one like the rest of them. They were poor And they were not poor in the sense of just being workers who would work and get paid at the end of the day and go home and spend whatever they got that day to buy what food they needed so they'd be ready to go back and work the next day. It was a word that was even more strenuous than that. It's a word which means what we call, where I came from, dirt poor. We don't have anything but the dirt. That was how poor they were. But they were the church, the Philippian church, from among the Macedonian church, they gave freely to the Apostle Paul when no other church supported him in his mission church-planting endeavors. And that endeared them to him. And it endeared them to God, too. It was a spiritual sacrifice. We have a couple in our church today. Yesterday they were here. They may not be here today. And the young lady grew up in our church, was baptized, she said, 19 years ago as a believer in Jesus Christ in our church. Her name at that time was Corey McDonald, the daughter of Chester and Charlotte McDonald. She's now Corey Shirey. She and her husband Jonathan have served the Lord in Jordan. They're currently serving the Lord in Turkey. And they're here with their three children, Guy, Simeon, and Lucy, for some R&R. They are being used by the Lord in a mighty way. Now look, what are we to do? We're priests. What's our responsibility? We grab God by one hand and we grab others by the other hand. This church has in some ways, and we're not anything compared to the Philippian church in the first place, we're not dirt poor. And we're not as generous as they. But we have, under the leadership of the Spirit, committed ourselves to give, in a sense, from the church offerings you give sacrificially to help people like the Shires. 
Every time you give money, you're doing that. And we need to increase what we give, is my viewpoint, what we give in terms of a percentage of our budget, instead of fritting it away on things that are of no consequence. So we, we reach out to the Lord, and we reach down to the Shires and so many others like them, whom the Lord has given us resources to help. And guess what? People in Turkey, who are Muslims, want to know about Jesus. And they get saved. People in Jordan, where they minister to, people were saved and discipled. And this is an example of our, as a spiritual temple, a holy priesthood, make spiritual sacrifices, and people's lives are changed. Communion with Jesus is the avenue for this building up of the body of Christ. If we don't commune with Jesus... We're going to see why this is said. What I'm saying just now is true as we look at verse 4 and see how critically important it is. If we don't commune with Jesus, if we don't abide in Christ, then we will not be a church that is the kind of church that Jesus is building. And coming to Him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Let's parse this just a moment. Coming to Him. This means we are to have a habit of coming to the Lord. A lot of people get what some have called the sip that saves. They just want a little sip of Jesus. You know what I mean? Just enough to inoculate them against being condemned to hell when they die. But what Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the idea is keep on coming to me and keep on drinking. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. We are to habitually come before the Lord, commune with Him, and He is the living stone. You probably would say, and you would be right to say, that, well, that's speaking of the fact that Jesus, when He died, after three days He was raised from the dead. Yes, praise God. If it were not for the resurrection, we would not be present here today. He's living, and His living Enables us to live, too, because the idea is not only is He living, but He imparts His life to us. And I want to read one more time what David read earlier from Ephesians 2. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. How is this temple growing? In Jesus, right? We're in Christ. How often do we see that phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord Jesus? We see it over and over again. We are like branches in a vine, Jesus says. We're in Christ. We're communing with Him. And He shares His life with us and through us. Jesus said in John 6.51, He said, I am the living bread that has come down out of heaven If you eat of this bread, you will live forever. Do you see how Jesus is alive? Yes. And He doesn't have to share His life with us, but He has chosen to share His life with us. And the result is that we too are people in whom that life resides and through whom that life flows. We must keep on coming to our Lord. Look at the text again. Rejected by men. The Bible says in John 1, 9 through 11, speaking of Jesus, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, i.e., they rejected Jesus. Jesus was rejected by his own family members with the exception of Mary, his mother. They all rejected him. And all mankind has rejected Jesus at the outset. But Jesus does not let that affect his view of himself. Why? Because he knows that, verse 4, he's a choice person as far as the Father is concerned. At the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke. He said, this is my Son, my chosen one. Jesus knew he was chosen. What about you and me? Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. You too are chosen. Do you know what that did for Jesus? When all others rejected Him, He would go back to His reference point, who was none other than God the Father. He'd go back to the Father, and He would be reminded, you are My Son. You are my chosen one. That's when you and I find ourselves being rejected by people and promise of God in Jesus is we will suffer rejection by identification with Christ. We will suffer it. But we come back and he says, you are my father's chosen one. And precious in the sight of God, Jesus was. We can't imagine how precious Jesus was. And that only serves to heighten my appreciation and gratitude to God for the fact that He sent His only Son whom He loved, who was precious in His sight to save us. But do you know you're precious in His sight too? He chose you. And Jesus died for you, if, if you as if you were the only person who needed His sacrificial death. If you suffer from self-esteem issues, the quickest way to get over it is to get to know the Lord because you'll learn just how much He loves you and cares for you. Dear person here today who is hurting because of poor choices in your life, you've made bad decisions in your life, you may feel like the Lord wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Look, if you come to Christ and you trust Jesus and you don't, Try to fake Him out. You say, Lord, You know me inside and out, and I'm tired of this life. I'm giving my life to You, Lord, once and for all. You know what He'll say? I've been waiting for You to come to me. Today is the day of Your salvation. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, are you weary? Are you tired of your life? It's just such a wreck and a mess. Well, cast your burden on the Lord. Take His yoke upon you. Learn what it's like to be taken care of by someone who loves you. He doesn't want to do anything but build you up, not to tear you down. God is calling you today as the men saying, Come home, come home, you who are weary, come home. Let's look a little further in this text as we go to verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay... In Zion, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. You might say, well, I believed in him and I'm disappointed. Well, you have a skewed and really a warped view of who the Lord is because you don't recognize him as being one 
who loves you and has a plan for you. And it's a good plan. And He will take what is hurting you today and turn it into something good if you trust Him. I love what I read one time that uh, Mrs. G. Campbell Morgan was fond of saying. Her husband was a great pastor in early 20th century Britain. She said, disappointment is his appointment. Begin looking at the disappointments in your life as his appointment for you to offer up a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord that he can use to help others who are troubled because if you are afflicted, it's for their comfort and their salvation. That's what the Bible says. God wants to use you, and He will use you as you trust Him in this way. Look again at verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. We who believe, we understand this, don't we? Do we think of Jesus as a beautiful cornerstone? Oh, yes, we do. Do we look to Jesus as our reference point in life? Do we see Him as the central figure in our lives? Do we believe what a man like John Stott wrote when he said, Jesus Christ is the center of Christianity. Everything else is circumference. Jesus is the attraction. And we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The result is we walk in a very positive way as we follow Him and He uses us. But those who are unbelievers, it's different. Look at the last part of verse 7. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very corner stone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Have you stumbled over Jesus? Have you been really put off by the person of Christ? Well, you're not the first person and you won't be the last. But what I want you to understand today is that Jesus is a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. A stepping stone. He is the way to God. The way to eternal life. The way to a full and meaningful life. Jesus is the way. And quit stumbling over Him. Trust Christ as your Lord. Look at the last part of verse 8. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. This is referencing probably primarily the Gospel. And to this they were also appointed. God has not appointed people to disobedience, but has foreordained stumbling to be the punishment of their disobedience. The reason you're so beat up, and I'm not talking about physical beaten up, you may be beaten up a bit physically, but internally you're emotionally beaten up, is because you've disobeyed the Lord. You have said, I don't want to follow you, Jesus. And all the while... It's in following Him that we find peace. And we find what God has created us for. And we who know Jesus are part of this great superstructure that He is building based on the cornerstone. He's building it, isn't He? He's still building it. That's good news for us. We're part of that plan to participate with the Spirit of God. For this building, God will use us as we trust in Him for that. Is Jesus precious to you? Have you really recognized His value? Or is He a stumbling block? My plea to you today is if He is still your stumbling block, come to Him and trust Him 
and He will become your most blessed friend ever. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today. We thank You for Your Word. And we ask You, Lord, to forgive us who know You for not really trusting You as we should or not understanding who we are in Christ and knowing that we're part of the solution to this world that is so troubled. Help us to know how to do that as a church. Certainly that means as individuals, but as a church. Lord, and for those who are here this morning, if you're here this morning and you know you need the Lord badly, remember that Jesus insists upon not just being your Savior, but He insists upon being your Lord. That means He's in total control. You relate to Him as your Master. If you've never known Jesus as your Lord or your Master, and you are hurting today, and you know you need something more in your life so that you can be a person who is fulfilled, then trust Christ today. Just say to Him now, Lord, I come to You in humility. I don't deserve Your salvation, but I need You, Lord. Please, please save me. And I want to follow You as You see fit for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.